We get letters all the time from people that want to know if they should forgive the person that molested them or if they should forgive the person that abused them, lied to them, stole from them. We have women write to us and say things like this. A mother writes and she says, when I was a child up until I was 14, my father molested me. Then I left home, got married when I was 16. I'm now 31 years old. I hadn't talked to my father in six years. He moved into the area where we live and we have seven children. And we go to this church and they told me that I need to forgive my father for what he did. And my husband says I should forgive him for what he did. And he wants to take the children for Thanksgiving and Christmas or he wants to take them on a vacation. My husband said I should be forgiving because if you don't forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father won't forgive you your trespasses. And so what do you say? You ever get a letter like that? <laughs> And then we get letters where a man says that he was molested when he was uh, young by an uncle. And that when they have Christmas or Thanksgiving or get together that that uncle is there. And that since he was young and molested his uncle has gotten saved or gotten religion or whatever. And his uncle now wants to hold the children in his lap, wants to give them a lot of attention. And he is really distant towards his uncle and unforgiving towards his uncle. And his wife says that they should forgive the uncle now that he has been forgiven, now that he is saved, now that he's a Christian. Another person wrote us and said that daddy was a preacher and that he had gone out on his wife and been unfaithful there in the church. And that now that he had repented and gotten right with God, that uh, he should be forgiven and allowed to continue in the ministry. That he should be trusted as a man of God. Somebody else writes and says that their pastor had committed a fornication, had left his wife, uh, married a young girl, 25 years younger than him. And now that he was married and had repented of his past sin, that... He should be forgiven and allowed to continue to be pastor of the church or to go and get a new pastorate somewhere. And uh, the question was, is that, is that correct? Now, people are uneasy. That's the reason they write and ask these questions. They're not comfortable with the modern psychobabble that's coming out of the church movement that says that you are to tolerate and forgive and let all things in the past be in the past and lay down in complete trust of anybody that professes to have been saved or been forgiven. Now, is that a correct view? Is that what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach that we are to forgive all people of all offenses against God or against us, regardless whether they have repented or whether they have not? What does the Bible teach on the subject? Let me start off by saying this to you. You are not authorized, licensed, nor is it your right to forgive some people of certain things. It would be a sin against God to forgive some people. You must hold it against them. Amen. Now I'm going to prove that from the Word of God. This is not current, it's not popular, but it is biblical. You see, we live in an age when the supreme virtue is tolerance. If you tolerate above all things, then you're virtuous. And Jesus was one of the most intolerant people in the entire Bible. 
The whole New Testament is a story of his intolerance. Now, turn in your Bible to Matthew 6, 12. First of all, we'll look at the three or four passages that are used most popularly to teach that you are to forgive everybody. What they mean by forgiveness is that you are to assume a relationship to them as if this had not occurred. Now, does God forgive all sin? Of course he does. We've got guys in the prison who molested 40 kids, got caught and are put in there for 30, 40 years or for life, forever. And they want to know, after getting saved, have I been forgiven? You are as forgiven as the cleanest, snow-white, three-year-old little baby could possibly be. All your sins have been put away. You are absolutely forgiven once and for all and forever. And when you stand before God, there be no mention made of your past sins. God's a lot more gracious than I am. And if you're an adulterer or you've been a queer in the past and God has saved you, now then you are nothing but a cell in the body of Jesus Christ, as pure as the Christ's body itself. You are as innocent and as, as forgiven as he as possibly can be. That's absolutely true. You see, there is no reserve. There's no holdback when God forgives sins. When he forgives, he forgives completely. He forgives altogether and it is gone. It's put away. And in Christ's estimation, you are an heir with Jesus Christ. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And you are seated in the heavenlies. But in the book of Hebrews, he said that we're heir of all things. And he said, yet we don't see that right now. We don't see all things put under man's feet. What we see here on the earth, man to man, is the old flesh. What we see are the old habits and patterns. What we see is the old self still residing in a body capable of sin. Now, Matthew chapter 6 verse 12 says, Jesus taught his disciples to pray this, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that seems to be pretty heavy there. In other words, your forgiveness is conditioned upon your forgiving others. And as you forgive others, God forgives you. As you fail to forgive others, God will not forgive you. Now that scares the crazies out of some people who've got a very wicked person in the near past or even in the present and they're told they have to forgive that person if they're going to get to heaven. And they sit down and try to conjure up a feeling of love and fuzzies for this individual that they suspect may still be molesting some other kids and they just can't find forgiveness in their heart. And it drives them crazy. There's the ones who are writing us the letters. And the Christian counselors are telling them that healing in their own life won't begin until they're able to forgive. So they create this psychological um, deception in their own heart to where they tell themselves that in fact they have forgiven. But then their true feelings keep coming back to the surface in unwelcomed moments. And it creates this sense of isolation and guilt before God in them on a continual basis. Their whole life 
becomes destroyed, not just by the sin that occurred against them in the past, but their life is being destroyed today by the guilt that's being heaped up on them by Christian doctrine that tells them they're supposed to feel the warm fuzzies for this individual that sinned against them. And so not only is their life torn up, but their relationship to their children, the way they relate to their husband or their wife, and the way they relate to other people is destroyed by this false doctrine that if they don't forgive this person, they'll not be forgiven. You say, but how can it be false? You just read the scripture. We're going to come to that, but let's look at the scripture and see what it actually said. Forgive us our debts. What are you asking God to forgive you? Of your debts. Right? Didn't say sins. Says debts. Did it ever dawn on anybody that a debt and a sin might be two different things? <laughs> forgive us our debts. Now that word debt is that which is justly or legally due to you. And it is translated, it's only used two times in the New Testament. The other time is Romans 4.4. 4. It says, now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Same word. It's translated the same way, of debt. In other words, if salvation comes to you because you work for it, then you're not getting it through grace. You're getting it because it was a debt owed to you. That's the word, forgive us our debts. It's not the same word that's used for sins. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This word debtor in Matthew 18, 24 is translated this way. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him, owed him 10,000 talents. Same word debt, owed him 10,000 talents. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, in other words, this debtor is not one who has sinned against God. It is an individual who owes you something. The owing is personal to you. This is not a violation of the commandments of God. This is an individual relationship situation whereby that person has some outstanding obligation or duty to you. And you are to forgive them so that God will forgive you. To carry a grudge, to carry a bitterness, to carry a hatred towards someone who has an obligation, even if that obligation is a moral obligation or if that obligation is an ethical obligation. In other words, if, if that person has been very mean-spirited or offensive to you and uh, you feel like they owe you an apology, he said you are to forgive them anyhow. You are to lay that aside. You are to release them from that obligation to come and make things right and you are to accept them right now and forgive them. That's what the scripture says here. All right? That's just what it says. Now, let's go on. It goes a little further. Lead us not to temptation, deliver us from evil. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now, this word forgive is also translated to leave off or to release. In other words, it, this word to forgive is... We have used it so much in religious circles, we think of it in terms of God forgiving us or we forgiving somebody in terms of setting aside their sin forever. That's not the way the word forgive is used. It's used in economics, it's used in, uh, it's used in politics, it's used many different ways. 
It's used many different ways in the Bible. So when he says, forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. For if you forgive not men their trespasses, this word trespass is an offense against you. It's, it's something committed against you. You are to forgive. In other words, release it, turn it loose, let it go. You do realize that you're incapable as a human being of forgiving another man's sins. I mean, just, just think about it. You are incapable of forgiving another man's sins. You can't do that. That's not your right. It's not within your power to absolve a man of his guilt. The only thing you can do is when he has a personal offense or transgression, it can be a sin against you. And you're holding out on him, you can release him from that obligation, that transgression. Now, of course, that would extend all the way to someone molesting you. You can release them of that if they have repented, which we'll come to. Now, he says, Mark 11, 25 and 26, and when you stand praying, forgive. In other words, when you come to God to pray, if you have a burning, hurting, painful sense of accusation against someone. You have a bitterness that stews. When you pray, forgive, if you have ought against any. Now, that doesn't say if you've committed an offense. That means if you have anything against an individual, if you have ought against him, that your Father, which also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive men, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Now, we won't break this one down as we did the other. We have the same situation there. Now, let's look in Luke 11, too, where the Scripture gives us one more pass. Luke 11, too. This. this is a very good explanation of the former two passages. And he said unto them, when you pray, say. Obviously this is a reference to the same Lord's Prayer we covered in Matthew 6. When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us this day our daily bread. Now notice the wording here. Forgive us our sins. Now this word sins this Greek word here is sins. It's the same word for the blood putting away our sins, for God forgiving us of our sins, for your sins being washed away in the blood. That's the word sins. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted unto us. That in word debted is the exact same Greek word translated if any has ought against you. It is also translated ought many times. It's translated due many times. It's translated owed as owing somebody something. So here's the way it reads. Forgive God, forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who have ought, do, owe me something. Look at the wording again. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted. What's the next two words? To us. This is not a sin against God. This is a personal indebtedness to the individual that I can release them from. I can forgive them that debt to me. In other words, by forgive, I don't mean that I'm absolving them of sin. That's not what the word forgive means in many cases. I can forgive the debt. 
I can release them from the obligation to make this thing right, even without them coming to confess it. I can say, I'm not going to treat this as an offense anymore. I'm just going to let this go. You can do that. And that's what we should do. Now, Matthew 18 gets down to the nitty gritty. The word of God is so different from the goody goody religion that we get today. So different from the feel good fuzzies that are preached in the name of the gospel. Matthew 18, 2. This is going to set you back. And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the middle of them. And he said, Verily, verily, I say to you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is the subject of this chapter? Little children. So much you hear this preached, and that's supposed to be new Christians. <laughs> this is not new Christians. This is little children. That's like these little three right down here, that one with his hand in his mouth, and that one with his hand in his mouth, and this one sucking his thumb, and the other one pulling on his belly button. I mean, that's little children, see. For whosoever shall offend, offend one of these little ones. That word offend doesn't mean uh, upset him emotionally or intellectually. That means cause an offense against him. Shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. In other words, if a man should molest a child, a millstone weighs about 4,000 pounds. It's a big round rock like this with a square hole in the middle of it where a piece of wood goes down in it. And it's hooked to a long horizontal beam perpendicular to the beam goes through the middle of the millstone. The millstone lays flat like a wheel laying on the ground. And the horse pulls the beam around and around the round stone like a donut with a square hole in it, turns on top of another stone, you pour meal or dough, grain down through a hole in the stone close to the center. And as it uh, goes into a cavity between the two stones, slowly that cavity gets uh, tighter and tighter until it grinds the meal and it comes on the outside edge. Sometimes millstones would crack, they would get busted, they would wear out, and they would be thrown aside. So he said it'd be better if you were to take that 3,000, 4,000 pound donut, stick it down over a man's head, tie it down real good and throw him off in a lake than for him to molest or abuse or harm one of those little children. That's the subject. He says, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. About one out of four children end up getting molested by the time they're grown by somebody. About one out of four. That means one out of four in here. You're not protected because you don't live in San Francisco. He said, for it must needs be that offenses come. He said, it's going to happen. That's the kind of world you're living in. But woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh. Woe is calling down the most severe judgment and damnation of God. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off. This is in regard to little children now. If your hand or your foot offends you, cut it off and cast it from thee. In other words, with disdain, throw that hand away that would offend the children. With disgust and revulsion and hatred, cast that hand out of your sight into the weed somewhere for the flies and the worms to feed on it. Cast it from thee. 
He said, for it's better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. A man says, I just can't help it. It's bred into me. Cut it off. I preached this one time when I was about 18, 19 years old and my college professor came out to hear me. He said, you can't say that in public. He said, somebody's liable to do it. I said, there's three people there that needed to. He said, they'll hold you responsible for that. I said, well, this time they did it if they're going to be responsible. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Man said to me, I can't stop pornography. Have you ever thought about getting rid of your computer? Well, I need it for email. <laughs> How bad do you want to stop your pornography? Well, you see, I have to have it at work. Have you thought about getting a job as a carpenter? Well, I, I just, I just, I'm too old to do that. I just have to make a living on a computer. Well, have you thought about putting your eyes out and getting one of those Braille computers? <laughs> it's pretty hard to do pornography with Braille. Have you, have you thought about that? Well, I, I've tried. I just, you know, the Bible gets right through, cuts through the quick and gets right to the bottom line. Amen. You want to get right with God? There's a way to do it. Amen. If you can't repent and you can't claim the blood and you can't reckon yourself to be dead and deed unto sin, then cut it off. Amen. Because if you offend, offend one of these little ones, woe unto you. Take heed that you despise not. He's coming back to his subject to show you he's still on the subject. Despise not one of these little ones. See, we've not left the context. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of the Father which is in heaven. Now yesterday I preached this in the prison. I had sitting in front of me at least 15 to 20 guys who were in there for molesting somebody. And I said to them, when you molest a child, that child's angel appointed to be his guardian, the overseer for that child, appointed to minister on behalf of that child, that child's angel is standing in front of God, looking into God's face. And as your filthy hand touches that child, that angel is totally conscious and aware of it as he looks into the face of God. And God is aware of it. What does that angel's expression look like when you offend one of these little ones? What is his expression saying to God and what is God saying back? You think you're doing it in secret. You think you're getting away with it. But not only God, but the angels in heaven know what you did. And one day, the whole universe will know. Because all your sins will be made public at the judgment of God. And you'll give an account. Woe unto those that offend one of these little ones. He said, verse 11... For the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which was lost. Now most people read the Bible as if it were alphabet serial. You know, just a little here and a little there. You just kind of take out a dish and 
This chapter, the whole chapter is about offending children. Look what he says. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Oh, that's the drunkards down there. No, it's nice to my children. How think you if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray? Say, see, there's talking about an, a, a, a man 55 years old left the church and went out into the world. And he's talking about children. How think if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them go astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth unto the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more over that sheep than over the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, now he's going to relate what he just said about seeking the one out of the hundred. He's going to relate it. Even so, it is not the will of the Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So he's saying that God's attention is focused on the one that has gone astray, not on the 99. And so it must be that when one of these little children is offended, God forgets the 99 and his focus is on that child. Not for condemnation, but for forgiveness for blessing, for solace, for love, for restoration. But his mind must also be on the one that offended. And it's not a mind to bless. It's not a mind to forgive. Only if that man dies the bloody death of Christ on Calvary will he get out from under the condemnation of that sin. Oh, then he could. Then he would. Listen to what he goes on to say. Verse 15, moreover, if thy brother trespass against thee, he's not changed the subject. You see the word moreover? Just as he linked verse 14, even so is a reference to 11 through 13 about the sheep gone astray. Moreover is a reference back to 14 and back to the earlier verses. Moreover, and in addition to that and much more than that, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Now, people have said to me, women have said, should I go over and tell my father I forgive him? I ask them, has your father come to you in tears and brokenness and confessed the awfulness of his sin? Has your brother, has your uncle come and confessed? Has he begged your forgiveness? Has he shown contrition and remorse and said to you that he has taken his sin to God and he's been forgiven and washed in the blood and made whole? Has he done that? No, he hadn't. But my counselor says I should go and tell him he's forgiven. What do you think? What I think is you should go to him and you should tell him his trespass. You should go to him and cry. Go to him and scream. Go to him and tell him off for what he did to you. Go and tell him how sick he is and how he has hurt you and destroyed your marriage and your ability to raise children and to live a normal life. Tell him what a scum and a scuzzwad he was 
and rub it in his face and remind it of him and tell him he needs to repent and get right with God and be forgiven. And if he doesn't, he's in danger of the fires of hell. That's step number one. You know, psychologists talk about getting your self together. That'd do more to get you together. <laughs> if you want to talk about psychology, that'd do a lot more to get you together than going over there pretending that you got the fuzzies for him. And then what's the next thing? If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. In other words, if he hears you and he repents and he confesses his sin, you gained him. You, you made a convert out of him and you restored him to your fellowship. But if he will not hear thee, now here's the getting to the crux. If he will not hear thee, he will not repent. Then take with thee one or two more. Then in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So little children, who are now no longer little children, go and tell him of his sin. If he won't repent, take two people with you. If it's not a matter for the church, the church is nowhere near and not involved, then take another uncle and a brother or a mother or somebody else or a grandmother and say, here is what he did to me and I have challenged him to repent and he won't do it. You say, but that would be embarrassing for him. What do you think it's going to be like in the great white throne judgment when the whole world finds out? When my wife and I first got married, she had a best friend who, uh, family found out that the old granddaddy was molesting the young girl until she got about 17 or something. And they came, she came out with it, you know, and he made a slut out of her. And the family was kind of torn up, but they kept it quiet. They just made him pay her a large sum of money. Uh, for it and they kept it quiet so they made a prostitute out of her that's what all these people are doing these catholic priests now they turned this 150 guys that were molested by the catholic priests some of them are now 40 and 50 years old and they're getting money they're prostitutes he says if he will not hear thee then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established and if he shall neglect to hear them tell it unto the church Take that offense to the whole church, the whole family, the community, and say, here's what he did. And I say, take it to the law. Take it to the law. If he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Treat him as an unsaved, godless heathen and a publican to be avoided. You are not allowed to forgive him. You have no right to forgive him. You have a command to not forgive him if he won't repent of his sin to God. You see that? If he won't hear you and he won't repent, count him as a publican and a heathen. And don't go around feeling guilty every time you have this sense of rage at what he did to you. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth. Again, he's not changed the subject. We chopped the Bible up so bad we can't understand it. And whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Now guess what this word bind and loose means. It means just what it says in English. Whatever you'll tie up, whatever you hold, whatever you restrain on earth, 
will be restrained in heaven. Whatever you loose, turn loose of, let go, free, set free on earth will be set free in heaven. Now, this is not about binding the devil. This is not about loosing the spirit of God. That's charismatic claptrap. This is about binding and loosing an individual who's committed an offense against a child. Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Remember the church has gone to this individual. The church has challenged this individual to repent. He has not repented. The church is counting him as an, a heathen, an unsaved man. He said when the church does that, God does that. People don't fear the church. They ought to. God has given power to the church to bind a man and damn him if he's unrepentant of his sin. Boy, the Bible's a strange book, you know. That's what it says. That wouldn't be very popular in Zondervan <laughs> family bookstores. It wouldn't be like the prayer Jabez, you know. You wouldn't sell a four or five million copies off of that. You'd have to squeeze it a long time to get a blessing out of that. He says, it shall be done for them which my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. See, that's not about the church getting together and praying for missionaries. That's about the church getting together and binding some man to his sin or loosing him based on whether or not he confessed it and repented of it or not. You see, you have the power to, to bind that old man that molested you. Now, you don't have the power to loose him unless he repents. One of the guilty men in the prison yesterday said, well, you see there, you've got the power to bind and loose, so you're supposed to loose everybody. I said, not on your life, not on your 20-year prison sentence. An individual does not have the power to loose you from your sin until you have turned from it and repented and gotten right with God. Then came Peter unto him and said, he's again, he's not changed the subject. Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him till seven times. In other words, if a man comes and sins against you in this context or another, and then he repents, notice it says he repents and you forgive him. He comes back and he sins again, he repents, you forgive him, come back and sins again. Seven times we try my patience. I mean, how many times do you let a dope head smoke dope with somebody he's trying to witness to and you find out about it and rebuke him and he says, well, I'm sorry, I won't do it. And he gets right with God and you forgive him and he does it again. After seven times, I forced seven times up, I'm through with him. Right? Should I be? What does he say? That's what Peter thought. Peter thought he's real generous. <laughs> I'd feel real generous here seven times. I'd feel just very deeply compassionate and forgiving to forgive the, a guy seven times of the same sin. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I say until 70 times seven, until 70 times seven. In other words, that's 490 times. Tom's got a long way before he gets there, hasn't he? And now he gives an illustration to Peter in verse 23. That wasn't off the cuff. I meant to say that. He gives an illustration in verse 23. Now this illustration is a continuation of the same thought. What he's about to do is to be more detailed in explaining what he's already said. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him that owed 
This ode is the same Greek word that appeared in Matthew 6, 12, where he said, forgive us our debts, is the same word as debts. One brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. That's a weight. That's a lot more than $10,000. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and his children, all he had in payment to be made. But the servant fell down, worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I'll pay thee all. Then the Lord, that servant, was moved with compassion and loosed him. You, know, you remember the word loosed? Whatsoever you bind in heaven shall be bound on earth. Whatsoever you loose. And he loosed him, that is of his debt, and forgave him the debt. That's the word debt again. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those which are indebted to us. Now, the illustration is this. Here's a man. They live in a time when if you didn't pay your bank note or your credit card or whatever, or your rent on your house, after a certain period of time, they could come and have you thrown in jail. And if... You didn't pay the debt. They could have your wife and your kids sold into slavery. And all your property would be sold to pay off the debt. And if that still didn't cover it, then you'd stay in prison till the day you died if you didn't pay that debt. Now that's, in our modern day and age, the only people that have power to do that is the IRS. But in that day, it was general policy. Anyone could do it. Now, the man began to beg for forgiveness, fell down and worshiped, have patience, I'll pay thee all. And the Lord loosed him from his debt, which is what we're commanded to do. He loosed him. He said, I'll forgive you. It's okay. I'll forgive you. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. That's not much. A talent is a weight of gold. A pence is like a, a day's wages. So that's about, a, you know, just a hundred pence a and not be much. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll pay thee all. He did the same thing that the other man had done to invoke his master to forgive him of his debt. Now you notice verse 29 is an example of repentance. He is repentant. And he would not, but he went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. And the Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall your heavenly Father do unto you, if from your hearts you forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. You see, that's where the thing started. And that's where it ends. We are to forgive when the person repents. When they don't repent, we are not to forgive. God gives an example. He said, if you don't forgive others, I won't forgive you. He gives an example of a man who would not forgive those that were indebted to him when he himself had been forgiven. And God took his forgiveness back and damned the man to the tormentors because he wouldn't forgive the repentant man. So what do we have here? We have a statement that when a person has repented, has turned from his sin, you are commanded by God to forgive them. 
If God has forgiven them, you should forgive them. If God has accepted the fact the sin is put away, you should accept the fact that the sin is put away. Now, let me ask you, how does God respond to a man who is totally forgiven? Does God in the New Testament, we won't have time to go into all the scripture on this, but you, you will recall verses of scripture. When a man is forgiven of his drunkenness, does God tell him then that he can go to a bar and become a witness to people in bars? See, I can go in a bar and sit down and witness to somebody and smell their beer blurry breath and have all that booze flowing around me and it does not provoke me to want to drink at all. Uh, when I smell cigarette smoke, all I want to do is get away from it. Other people smell cigarette smoke and they want one. Now, I can go down where there's prostitutes and I can witness to them. And I am not tempted to take one of those prostitutes any more than I am Mike Holliday's dog. That's not been my past. I am not provoked in any way. It does not stir me. It does not bother me. I am not tempted to turn my computer on and get pornography off the web. I've never, done, never seen it for the first time, and I'm not interested in seeing it. I've talked to too many people that have and know how it damns their soul. I don't want it any more than I want hepatitis. So I'm just not going to look at it. Now, if you've had a weakness in the past, if you were a pothead, you shouldn't sit around, as I did one time, in a house with a whole group of people smoking pot, and I witnessed to them. And I won three of them to the Lord. Two of them anyhow. Three professed and two of them actually got saved in the long run. Now, it didn't bother me. It just smelled like some burning rope or an old garbage or something to me. It didn't mean a thing to me, you know. And uh, I didn't stay there long enough to get high or anything. If I did, I didn't know it. So it didn't bother me. I didn't want to go back for more. So I got away with it. Now, if you've had a problem in the past, the Bible says flee youthful lust says, get away from it. Run from it. So if, when you got saved, let me put it this way. When you got saved, God did not change your mind. If you were a gambler and a porno freak, the day after you got saved, every thought you had in your head the day before you got saved is still in your head. Every porno image you ever saw is still there. And when the dice roll on the table, it gives you a flushing thrill like nothing else. When the cards are laid out and the chance of winning, you have this rush that says, this is what life is all about. Win, lose, or draw, this is what fun is. And you have this provocation to it. I told the prisoners just now, I said, some of you, after being saved 10 years, may lie in your bunk at night and your pedal pile images will come back to you. And your pedophilia will just drift through your mind. And if you pause on it, you may find pleasure in it. Now, I said, you rebuke it. You hate it. You chase it away. You say to Christ, I am dead to this. I am not alive to this. I said, some of you used to be queers. You may look at another man and think about him differently than what I would think when I look at him. You may look at him and be stirred as a man is stirred by a woman. Because your body's conditioned to it. And when you got saved, God didn't change anything in your body. It's exactly the same as it was. Now he wants to. He said, present your body a living sacrifice. He said that you need to have the renewing of your mind. So, 
God wants to sanctify your whole body, soul, and spirit. If you're an angry man before you got saved, very, very angry man, and you get saved and you've learned to deal with a wrench that slips by blowing up and throwing the wrench, you'll still want to blow up and throw the wrench the day after you get saved and the wrench slips. If you responded to pressure by getting angry the day after you get saved, you'll still want to get angry whenever the pressure comes on. You say, so what has changed when you got born again? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Your spirit is born again. Your body is not yet born again and won't be until you get a glorified one. That's when it gets born again. And your mind is not yet totally renewed. It's in the process. And your will is still in the process. All you've got is a new spirit from God that prompts you to righteousness and holiness and is grieved when you fail. Now, now that you're saved, do you keep a fifth of whiskey in the house? Now, we have in our house a bottle of vodka. That's potato juice, uh, whiskey or something, I don't know. We use it for herbs. I have never been tempted to go in there and take a sip of vodka. And I don't think my wife has. And, but we, we, we'll mix it with some kind of herb to break it down, then mix it with glycerin, and then make some kind of a tincture for cough syrup or something else. And you're just getting a few drops of this vodka. And so it's no problem for us keeping this vodka in the house. But for some of you, it would be. So there'd be some night when you couldn't sleep. There'd be some night when you'd get frustrated and anxious. And you'd remember what it felt like just to get relaxed and soothed. And you'd be tempted to say, well, I'm not an alcoholic anymore. I'm not a drunk, but I can go in there and I can just take a little sip of that. And it'll just help me to sleep, and relax me. And, and what would happen? You'd be right back on the booze again. Why? Because your flesh is conditioned in a way that mine is not. Do you agree with that? Your flesh is conditioned in a way that mine is not. Now, you were for years a molester. Should you be trusted to run a daycare center? Should you be a Sunday school teacher? Should you take all the children for a ride in your pickup truck? Should you be trusted even to take them out to the swing set and push the little girls or the little boys back and forth in the swing on Thanksgiving Day? No, you should not. And you of all people should be the first one to recognize your duty to flee from sin and to present a picture to everybody of your virtue so that they never have to wonder if you're trying to slip away. They'll always trust you because you don't trust yourself. And if that makes you angry to be under that kind of scrutiny, if that makes you bitter because people don't trust you fully, then you're not repentant towards God. If you're repentant towards God, you of all people would hate the sin the most. And you of all people would know how controlling and damning it is and how dangerous it is and you of all people would want to present an image to everybody of your virtue. Amen. So, should I forgive my uncle, my brother, my parents? Should I forgive that person that messed with me, messed me up? If they've been saved and born again and demonstrated forgiveness and this thing has been cleared and Yes, absolutely. Forgive them completely as if they had never sinned. 
and then recognize they're still in that body. And don't trust that body. They ought not be trusting, you ought not. And it's all right to have a frank conversation. Say, listen, I've completely forgiven you. But flesh is flesh. And I don't trust your flesh. And so I'm watching you. And maybe after 10 or 15 years, I'll relax a little bit. But right now I'm watching you. And when you're around my kids, don't ever ask them to go along with you. Don't ever expect me to drop them off. And uh, they need you. They need a granddaddy or whatever in their life. But they'll never sit in your lap. Never sit in your lap. And you let them know, frankly, where you stand. You let your husband, your wife, you let all the kids know. And above all, train your kids. Above all, teach your children. Insulate your children when they're four years old. Let them know what the limitations are. It should never be out of your sight until then, anyhow. I mean, molestation takes place in the living room with seven adults present and three kids. It takes place secretly, quietly, somebody sitting in somebody's lap. Don't trust anybody. Be careful. Because he said, Jesus said, it must be. Must needs be that offenses come. They are going to come. Are they going to get your kids? Some of you here, adults now, were molested when you were children. Some of you are still hurt and broken and wrestling with your own feelings about it. And some of that psycho babble has prevented you from healing. Because they've not allowed you to feel what you justly should feel. Not allowed you to confront the way you should confront. Not allowed you to take it to the church the way you should. To the family the way you should. And not allowed you to cast them off as a heathen and an infidel because they wouldn't repent. That bring more healing than this secretive trying to forgive business. As if the whole burden were cast upon you. Now, there may be some children here. You should have talked to your kids already. There may be some children here that there is somebody in this church, somebody around here, somebody, one of your relatives, that puts their hands where they shouldn't put them on your body, places that are secret and private, or they want to talk about or show you something or show you pictures. They want to discuss what mamas and daddies do in private. Those people are wicked. Those people are trying to lure you like the devil lures somebody into sin. I told my kids when that happens, I told my girls, just start screaming. Just start screaming right in the house, in the, down the hall, some relative. Just start screaming. Call them a faggot and run into the living room where we are. I'll take care of them. That's all I need. And I told my boys... I said, one of your cousins or one of your friends or somebody wants to touch you here. And I, was, I watched my boys about who they went camping with and where, where they did this and where they did that. I, I didn't let them get up in tree houses with, behind curtains and shut doors and out of sight and sound. I made, a, I made our houses, all of them, where the, every bedroom door opened the living room. I could stand in the living room, turn around and see what's going on in every single bedroom in the house. And didn't allow my boys with any locks on the doors. Didn't allow the girls to have locks till they got... Uh, own up old enough to need some real privacy dressing and then they weren't allowed to keep the door shut but three or four minutes to dress until they got nearly grown. 
Now you say, why? Don't you trust your kids? Of course not. They're flesh. Flesh is flesh. I don't trust my kids. I don't ask anybody to trust me. And why would you ask somebody to trust you? And why would you trust flesh? Why would you trust the other kids in the church with your kids? Why would you trust an 18-year-old young man you hardly know? Maybe you say, well, he's my nephew. Why would you trust him to take your four-year-old daughter for a ride? What makes you think that it'll be all right? Woe unto those by whom the offense has come. Must needs be they'll come, but woe unto those by whom they come. All right. There's a lot more scripture. We don't have time to cover it on this subject. And uh, maybe we'll do it another time. We'll stop there. This is kind of heavy for Sunday morning, but it's needful. needful. Yeah, let me make one more suggestion. Parents, go home, and sometimes this week, don't, don't say to your kids, all right, sit down, I'm going to have a talk here. Now tell me something. They'll clam up like, you know, they won't tell you anything. But sit down with them and ask them three questions that are nonsense that they'll answer. Ask them four more that are meaningless, that they get them talking and let them relax. And then ask them in the same tone, has anybody ever touched you here? And don't look like you're fixing to bust out crying or go into a rage or something when you ask the question. Ask it like it didn't matter to you what the answer was. And you're looking in their eyes and you already have their attention. They've already answered several questions. You know they're relaxed. You can tell. Do they freeze up? Do they look guilty? Do they look down? You'll know if they're lying to you or not. And if they are, then explain to them that it's not their fault, whatever's happened, that somebody else did it, and find out who. And when you find out who, go to them individually and confront them with it. Ask the other kids too, find out. And if they won't repent, Get two people in the church to go to them. And if that doesn't settle it, uh, we'll have to find another witness. One child's witness is not enough. You have to find another witness and get to the bottom of this thing. Okay? That's what you need to be doing. You need to have your kids warned from the earliest age. You've been listening to Michael Pearl teach the Word of God. This is a production of No Greater Joy Ministries Incorporated a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. Upon request, we'll send you a free bi-monthly publication containing our catalog of books, tapes, CDs, DVDs, and videos by Michael Pearl. Write to us at Norgreater Joy, 1000 Pearl Road, Pleasantville, Tennessee, 37033, or visit us and order online at norgreaterjoy.org.